Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. My guest today is Dr. Mark Lopes. You certainly know his name as Associate Editor of the Textbook of Clinical Chiropractic, the Purple Book, as we affectionately call it. In addition, he's authored numerous papers for peer-reviewed journals, and he's currently the chair of the Research Committee for the GCSS. Unlike most researchers, he's also in private practice. Dr. Lopes practices in Chico, California. So without any further ado, Dr. Mark Lopes. Hello, Dr. Lopes. Thank you for joining us today. Good to be here, David. Could you start off by telling us how you got into chiropractic and more specifically how you got into God's Day chiropractic? Um, I always wanted to be a dentist ever since I was young. And um, there's some funny uh, stories behind that, but we'll leave that out. Um, and when I got into junior college, I just didn't like... Well, I didn't like going to the dentist. I didn't like the idea of becoming one. And so I was just talking to my lab partner in biology, and he said he was going to be a chiropractor. And so I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And we walked out of the class, and I talked to another friend of mine whose girlfriend had just gotten a job with a chiropractor, and he said that this fellow would talk to me about it. So I went in and talked to him a bit about it, and he um, just said, well, the best thing would to, to do would be to just become a patient. Back then, everybody had 80-20 insurance. And he said, you know, I'll just take whatever insurance pays for it so it won't cost you anything. And he, he knew how to make a new patient, right? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he was a, a upper cervical um, hole-in-one kind of uh, re, you know, toggle recoil practitioner. Um, and so I started with him. And I remember going through his uh, lay lecture um, which they called at the time, and it was just a slideshow, but it really hit, you know, struck a vein with me. One of the things that really kind of got me was I had injured my neck when I was playing football in my freshman year in high school, and I never played after that. You know, I just landed on top of my head and injured my neck, and um, I ended up getting a re really sick uh, that summer. Um, almost died from pneumonia and. It really affected my health, and I'm pretty sure the the bad cervical subluxation that I had, you know, led to a lot of that, along with other things. But anyway, um, that had given me headaches and stiff necks pretty regularly, and he just happened to ask during the, the history, well, do you ever get headaches? And I said, well, just the normal headache. And he said, well, you, headaches aren't normal. And I said, they're not, because <laughs> you know, I had one all the time. Yeah. And uh, so... One adjustment in my headache went away for like a week and another adjustment is gone. It was like, wow. And so that really struck me as well. And uh, he took pre and post x-rays and I had a little curvature down uh, below in my thoracolumbar area. And after the upper cervical work, it seemed like that straightened out, that accompanying some other things like not sleeping on my stomach and other things. But bottom line, that that really got me going. And so I decided to be a chiropractor. And that's when um, uh, what eventually became Life West and Palmer West, before they were there, I lived in uh, Modesto, California at the time in the Central Valley. And I heard about that, that chiropractor knew about um, which was called Pacific States Chiropractic College at the time. And so we were waiting for it to open, um, or I was. And um, 
to get in there. So it was in Northern California, and they were supposedly going to have a really good program, and I liked the idea of it. So I waited till till that opened, and uh, that um, excuse me <clears throat> that um, excuse me I can hear that um, the let me let me move here for a second. Okay. So anyway, the uh, that led to me um, becoming uh, a student there. And uh, at first I wanted to be an upper cervical practitioner and that was kind of the focus. Most of the board members were all upper cervical people like Nuka and whatnot. And um, I met my eventual partner, Ed Cromata, who was in my class. Uh, if you don't know about Ed, he's, he's fairly famous, um, but yeah. he, yeah. Um, it was a, he was like, why do you want to do that? He goes, I'm going to be a Gonstead practitioner. And we hadn't had any chiropractic yet. And one day this chiropractor, Rod Campbell came to the school and gave a talk when we were in like second quarter or something. And uh, you got to understand there was no, we were the first class to go through. So there was nobody ahead of us ever. So there's nobody to look up to, nobody to, you know, you know, to kind of take the lead from, uh, so we just kind of waited until um, we uh, could get access to techniques before we could even, you know, get started in thinking about what we wanted to do. But after he spoke, I started to like what uh, what he said. And so we looked into it further. And then pretty soon, Dr. Peter O'Hara, um, who is Denny O'Hara's uncle, um, we called him E.F. Hutton because uh, whenever he spoke, everybody listened. You know, if you remember that old commercial. Yeah, uh, but, uh, <laughs> he he just became our mentor, and he taught us from uh, the first. I, I think it might have been in third quarter when we had our first technique class, but he taught us third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, like six quarters in a row. He stayed with our group. So, you know, we had a master class in Gonstead for like several, several quarters in a row. Yeah. So um, we had a really good exposure from a real good uh, source. And so that pretty much sealed the deal. Yeah, that's, and, that's uh, great. Yeah. How did he you was, get He was pretty, excuse me, he was pretty adamant in us getting involved in teaching and all of that. And eventually... The school split off, and uh, it's a long story, but became Palmer West and Life West. And uh, so that one school became two separate schools, and we went over to Palmer West. And uh, that that school is, is where um, we really developed more. It, 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 at the time, it was called Northern California College of Chiropractic, but we were just the, always the senior class. So we did all the teaching. You know, we were the ones that did all the supervising in clinic or so we had a lot of exposure to, you know, being up in front of people and leading them as Dr. O'Hara would teach us. And then we'd teach them basically. So yeah. that's cool. How did you get involved in research? Well, um, my partner, Ed Cremata was, um, I think the second uh, research director for GCSS. Uh, I think Richard Thornton was the first one. Okay. And back then it was, you know, what they called research was basically just uh, clinical ground rounds case kind of presentations, which was really good. But mm -hmm. um, and they did. And they supported some research. Uh, Roger Coleman did an excellent uh, article on the history of the GCSS that um, talked about all the 
donations they made to Chung Ha Su and some of the basic science research that was done. And GCSS was, you know, very interested in research in those early days. At least they put their money in it. Um, and uh, so uh, eventually Greg Plogger became the research director after Ed. And uh, when Greg was there, there's one of the first real research is coming out of uh, GCSS. And he was um, he was a student of ours. Um, when he was in school, uh, we were mentoring him and a group of people from uh, like the second quarter on. And <clears throat> he, I think I had him in the cervical class when I was teaching fifth quarter at uh, LifeWest. And uh, so, it, you know, he just became so interested in the research and everything that he took over for them. And then he got us involved in some research projects. And we were sort of the clinical um, consultant for some of his ideas as well. Um, and then that led to the textbook, the purple book. Uh, he, he came to my door one day when he was teaching at um, Palmer West, I'm sorry, Life West. And he was the research director there as well for a while. And, um, but he came, he came to me and said, Hey, uh, there's a call for textbooks. Williams and Wilkins is, has a call for textbooks. You don't want to write a textbook. And I said, no, <laughs> he goes, he goes, come on. All you have to do is write the subluxation chapter. Cause that was kind of my thing at the time. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay. So I ended up writing the subluxation chapter. And then of course we had to have the spinal examination chapter. So I wrote that. And then, I mean, he helped some on those, but, um, and then together we wrote the biomechanics and the philosophy and a lot of the other chapters, but, um, it just kept going, you know, so I kept getting to be a bigger and bigger project until it overwhelmed us for a while. And then thankfully it got done, but, um, that just in being involved in teaching and being involved in, um, writing and all of that and, um, being inquisitive myself. And so he got us involved as treating docs. We'd be the ones that would, Ed and I would be the ones that would run the scope and they'd test for inter-examiner reliability or we'd run the galvanic skin response, the, they call the ECS, we do that or just those kinds of things, just ideas and whatnot. And then eventually writing more uh, papers either on my own or with other people. And then uh, finally after Greg left, uh, the the research department we needed to find another one and so I was helping to kind of screen and then Roger Coleman came along and Greg had highly recommended him and uh, which was the best thing that ever happened to our research department um, just a genuinely great person and honest as the day is long and meticulous and hardworking and um, he had the right experience he, and he's a chiropractor he's mm -hmm. a chiropractor's chiropractor and um, so that just all, and then, so they kind of needed somebody to um, have some Gonstead experience that could interrelate with Dr. Coleman, who was coming more from a biophysics background. Um, and so I just became the research chair so that I could kind of consult with him and make sure that the projects were on point with what we wanted to figure out and, and, and study as a Gonstead group. So that's how that all led to where we are today.
Well, and since we're talking about that, could you share a little bit about the most recent project that you and Roger and your son worked on to create the app and kind of explain to people what, what the app's for, why it was necessary to create it and how they can get it and use it? Sure. Uh, well, there's there's been a lot of criticism about the pelvic marking system, Gonstead listing system, the pelvis because of uh, x-ray distortion uh, uh, and what it does to the image. And um, frankly, not a lot of people in the Gonstead work paid any attention to that for the longest time. Um, you know, if you have a person set up in front of uh, the Bucky and they're rotated a little bit in the pelvis area, you create your own ANEX. ASPI, um, you know, images because as 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 the pelvis gets closer to the to the source and farther away from the film, it's like playing uh, shadow puppets. You know, mm -hmm. it gets it gets to be a bigger on that side. So that's the PI side because it'll measure longer. And then as you rotate, the pubic symphysis will go one way and the sacrum will go one way. And so you'll create uh, this rotated sacrum, you know, PIEX kind of thing. Um, and the image, if you take just strictly the image, you don't look at the rotational distortion factors, then you really can't trust some of those factors. Um, and so uh, some of those measurements. And so what we did was we um, attempted to uh, basically quantify our distortion factors. And so um, when we, when we look at an image, then the thing that's most interesting, I'd say sort of the bottom line out of all of that is um, if you if you see, uh, you know, the typical pattern is on the low leg side, you'll have a PI and EX, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what is created by the rotation away from the film. So you, you rotate the pelvis forward on one side it's going to get longer the pubic symphysis is going to go to the opposite side and this then the leg's going to look shorter and and most of that is just image distortion like i say like shadow puppets um when you're looking at a light and your hands against the wall and you're making shapes right so when when we look at it that way and then we come and we step back and say okay well what happens though when you don't see that pattern when you see the short leg on the AS side, well, then you know that either there's an anomaly or a misalignment. It can't it can't do that just from uh, image distortion. And so, if you see the narrow side of the sacrum on the EX side, then you're I'm sorry on the IN side. If you see the the you know on the side where the deviation is towards. Mm -hmm. um, if you see a narrow sacrum over there, that's either a misshapen sacrum or a misalignment. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that has come out of this is by recognizing the typical pattern, if you see something that's outside that pattern, then you know that that's not normal. Um, so even if you take a picture that's rotated, you'll many times see valuable information. So you'll say, well, that's certainly not uh, due to distortion, that's got to be due to something else, right? So that's that's even if nothing else came of that, that's kind of a good bottom line. But it's still better to look at the picture. Um, but bottom line is, if you if you do what we did, is we we basically with the help of my son, who's 
a little more current in high level math than than I was, but I, it was fun relearning it all, you know, uh, as we went through it. And um, Derek, uh, well, Roger came up with the idea, um, and then Derek basically put it through, and then I was sort of the go between that kind of put pencil to paper and after he and I would discuss things and I'd do the math and then Roger would do the math and then we'd go back to him and say, this is what we want. And so at any rate, the, the app basically, if you take the position that the person is in at the time that you take the picture and you measure the distance between, if let's say if it's the, the uh, AP, if you, between the film and where S2 would be, let's say, okay. And you, you take your calipers and you measure that. And then you take the rest of the measurements off the film um, you can plug all that into this app and it'll tell you how much, uh, uh, you know, rotational distortion there was by degree, how much, de how many degrees of rotation there likely were, um, as close as you can do in this kind of a setting. I mean, from a, from a, uh, uh, a very strict mathematical point of view, there's some little errors in there, but it's not clinically significant. So we're hoping that. Um, and, and it's already come to, there, most schools were starting to think, a lot of the schools were starting to think that maybe we shouldn't be teaching like Palmer, Davenport, uh, maybe we shouldn't be teaching God said listings anymore because they have a very prominent, uh, instructor there that wrote a paper on the, the effects of distortion. And, and he has, his paper is a little, has some weaknesses in it, but it basically pointed out the same thing that other people have published. And it's been out there for years. And um, so we finally answered some of those questions, but it was a, it was several steps along the way to get to that um, that point where we could get where we are today. I mean, just the AP full spine film was being questioned heavily as to how, what the, you know, because of how big it is that you really can't, it's not diagnostic. And that's a crock of baloney because, um, if you look at a typical full spine film, everything and taken at um, say 80 inches, I, I take mine back as far as I can. Mm -hmm. you know, we were taught to take them at 72, but I take them back at about 80. I, I can't go back to 84 on my, my office. But if you take it at 80, that's twice the, the 40 inch that's normally taken for say a 14 by 17, right? Mm -hmm. What we figured out in the fir first paper that Dr. Um, uh, Coleman and I did was just looking at the AP film and saying, if you look at the geometry of it and the um, angles of divergence of the rays and the distances, um, a 14 by 36 x-ray, other than the top five and a quarter inches or so, or the bottom from five and a quarter, is basically equivalent to an eight by 10 x-ray. I'm sorry, a 10 by 12 uh, yeah. view. So, you know, if you look at the whole thing from, and most people don't take up the whole film, right? Um, a real tall person will take up the whole film. So some of the top part of it will be a little more distorted than a, than a 10 by 12, but it's probably very similarly distorted to a 14 by 17. Especially so, when you're shooting far back. When you're that far back. That? Yeah. When you're that far back. You can get a pretty tall person in there. Yeah. So what, when you're looking at, um, you know, the, the quality of the, or the diagnostic quality of the film, an AP full spine is basically on par with a 10 by 12, um, 
you know, for sure, at least on par with the 14 by 17, if you're taking it back at 80 inches compared to 40 inches, makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, but yet we, we still run into, um, uh, sort of biases, uh, from not sort of biases, but strong biases. Uh, there was one radiologist at one of the schools that when, um, a prominent instructor took this information to them uh, that happens to be a Gonstead practitioner and said, look at this paper and you're saying it's not a diagnostic quality film and you're telling these students they can't take them because of that. Then, um, he, he looked at it and said, well, no, I don't believe that research. You know, I don't, I, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not going to pay attention to that. You guys funded that research or whatever, you know, <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> we work our butts off to get it published in a peer reviewed, you know, PubMed listed journal. And then they ignore it anyway, because it's, you know, kind of confirmation bias type of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that particular uh, direction that we're headed um, with the x-ray in general. I mean, right now we've been working on a paper for over two years. We submitted it over a year and a half ago. We've been in review ever since. And um, we're on our third or fourth review, but we had five re peer reviewers, four of them signed off and said, Oh, that's just fine. And we have one that just doesn't want to give in. And uh, it's, we're having, I'm, I'm, basically almost finished. I'm, I'm the lead author on this one, but it's basically the, the clinical decision-making uh, in using x-ray in a chiropractic practice. Um, because we know all the guidelines are pretty much saying you don't need to take an x-ray for the first, you know, four to six weeks if they're under whatever, 65 and, um, and don't have red flags, you know, fracture, dislocation, infection, tumor, those kinds of things. So when you, when you look at what we do, you know, pretty much most of us are practicing outside of current guidelines. And so we're seeking to get in on that debate. And um, we, we feel we have a strong case. It's, it's not a far-fetched case at all. And there's some really good reasons why their position is not a strong position to, to, to take. Um, yeah. so there, there's the risk of, of radiation exposure at very low levels is, um, it does not follow the, um, linear, no threshold, uh, theory. Uh, it's actually more of an assumption and a hypothesis than a theory, but it's basically an erroneous theory at low levels. The, Radiation doesn't act that way at, you know, if you're familiar with linear no threshold, basically it's any level of x-ray exposure or radiation exposure will, you know, be detrimental to the body at any level mm -hmm. and um, propor proportional to the, in a linear fashion, proportional to the exposure level. Um, the Health Physics Society, which is a nonprofit you know, it's been around for since the 1950s and their whole point of being of existing is to talk about it, radiation safety. But they've they've said that, you know, anything other under 100 millisieverts per year is um, there's no evidence. It's either not harmful or the the uh, 
level of risk is so small that it's unmeasurable. Um, and there, and a typical background radiation might be two and a half millisieverts on average worldwide. And we're talking a hundred millisieverts is, you know, there's no evidence to support the idea that it's a risk to you. And so, and they even said up to a thousand is still questionable. Um, so when we talk about very low levels, we're, ours are probably, you know, an AP and lateral full spine is probably, you know, somewhere between one and a half and two and a half or, or maybe three, maybe less. If you get somebody that's smaller, not a real big person, but it's, it's on par with maybe somewhere between half to one and a half times a, a year's exposure of background radiation on average. And I mean, when we're talking about a hundred millisieverts and having no evidence to support it, when you're down around one, two or three millisieverts of an exposure, it's ridiculous that they, they consider that so risky that, and, and the, the benefit, um, so minimal that, that they're prohibiting us from taking them basically. Yeah. And that's interesting to me because my wife is a dentist and I shoot a lot of her x-rays and they shoot real low dosage, but what's opposite for them is that for them, it's malpractice to not take an x-ray. So it's like, <laughs> like you can't go drilling on a truth and not know what's happening in there. So yeah. it's just very funny that it's the exact opposite that way. And my wife was doing a presentation one time. So she was trying to come up with a comparison for, for their level of radiation. And she found it was equal to eating two bananas. And she was like, I didn't even know there was radiation in bananas, but apparently there are. Um, yeah, so, yeah, your food has radiation in it if you, you don't think about it. Yep. Yeah, and it was just funny to realize that. Anything that grows in the ground, I mean, you know, grows from the ground. Yeah, and it's using sunlight to grow. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, radiation is basically just moving energy. The only difference in, in you know, water, um, uh, sound, all those things are moving energy, light. Uh, the only difference is uh, radiation gives off electrons, you know, as it passes through materials. So ionizing, you know, in the tissues is 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 a concern, but it's um, it's just, I mean, you don't want to be willy nilly about it. But uh, what people discount, and I think maybe the saddest thing about our professional position right now, is people don't understand what a subluxation really is. I mean, people don't really, most graduates don't really understand what it is. They, they, um, they aren't trained to, to really look at what, what that means. I mean, my experience of, you know, what I've read is it's a pretty serious condition to have enough damage to your structure where the, the, the joints will buckle and be, you know, become malaligned and, and dysfunctional and uh, the morbidity of that. So, and the idea that you could somehow either by chance or by palpation alone know what that alignment is so that you don't increase the buckling. If it was, if it was one of those things where you're on a desert Island or if you're just in a place where a patient didn't want an X-ray and you felt comfortable giving them a, an adjustment without an, I have no problem with that. I don't have a problem if you don't want to take an x-ray and you feel it's safe in the because let's face it, people, more people in chiropractic, I mean, I think it's down to like something like only 15% of chiropractors take x-rays now before they 
adjust mm -hmm. and they're not out there killing everybody. So, uh, if we're, if we are, uh, being honest, it's not, uh, imperative that you take an x-ray on every single patient. It's, it's, it's more, what are you trying to accomplish? How many times you're going to adjust that patient too? I mean, if all you're going to do is loosen them up a little bit, just think of all the people that are out there popping their own necks four or five times a day. And it's not like they die, you know, from doing it. And so, they're not taking <laughs> What's that? And they're not yeah. taking x-rays before. Right. They have no idea what they're doing. They don't know what's in there, um, yeah. So, so it's a relatively safe thing to do. And, and, you know, so, but the idea that somebody who wishes to um, know more about what's going on or um, provide a level of service that addresses misalignment, uh, which is now being studied so much that we have normal, I, I sort of ideal spine models now from the medical profession. They've done a wonderful job. And there's some others in the chiropractic profession that have done some of that as well. But uh, the surgeons looking at from their lower limb all the way, they take, they take x-rays from head to ankles on the sagittal view. They take one picture of all that and they look at all the angulations and, and they determine outcomes by by the shape of a person's structure and so when we look at um, the trend in medicine is going the other way of course those are mostly surgical cases but there's also um, support for people who are doing non-surgical things uh, approaches to it to be aware of these things as well i mean basically any adult spinal deformity, which is a scoliosis, a curvature, a kyphosis, a hyperlobe, any, any, any deformation of their structure is called adult spinal deformity, you know, in a fully grown person. Uh, it's so prevalent and, and, it, and it follows such specific patterns that, um, that determine so much of your long-term, you know, viability of your structure. It's, it's, um, it's it's rather surprising that the profession that really started out talking about alignment before anybody else did has now pretty much abandoned it in academia. Mm -hmm. When they're getting on the bandwagon now, finally, we you know we we used to criticize medicine for not paying any attention to alignment. Now they're paying all kinds of attention to it, and we aren't. <laughs> and we gave it up. Yeah, it's that's strange. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very weird thing. I. I, one of my big questions um, for you was, uh, as I was thinking about it, so one of my big pet peeves is that if you go to Wikipedia, and I don't recommend this, if you go to Wikipedia and look up chiropractic, the first four words are, chiropractic is a pseudoscientific, and then it goes on from there. And I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter how much we do. We're called pseudoscientific, and their obvious implication, and if you go on to read what they've written, it becomes more than just subtle that medicine is 100% scientific and there's nothing unscientific about it. And we are completely unscientific and there's nothing scientific about it. So I love the fact that you mentioned subluxation and textbook in the same sentence because that's really what it's all about. They blame our pseudoscientific whatever on the fact that, oh, well, they believe, believe and it's not even know, it's not even have research of, it's just they believe in this mythical thing, this unicorn called the subluxation. Therefore, nothing they do can have any relevance. Overall, how pseudoscientific do you really think the chiropractic profession is in general? 
I don't think you can paint with a broad, broad brush in either direction. I mean, I think there's a lot of unscientific things that go on in our profession, just like there's a lot of unscientific things in other professions. But I think ours uh, leans a little further towards uns unscientific approaches when when you start involving uh, other aspects of, of our uh, approach, like philosophy and uh, art, um, there's there's a tendency to attack um, folks who aren't really that interested in science. Um, but uh, let's face it, most medical approaches are not being strictly followed based on scientific evidence. The idea of evidence-based medicine or or evidence-based chiropractic or whatever, um, it's more of a dream than a reality. I mean, you you do want to have uh, a, a basis, a scientific basis to what you're doing, but there's just the clinical approach always precedes the scientific approach. So, um, you know, people don't just all of a sudden think about studying something without having had a practical um, experience with it. So you, you, you see a case study, for instance, you know, you, you, you run across a person that has a certain condition and then that sparks interest. And some people write up a case study or just they see a collection of these cases and they decide, hey, we better look into this. There's something here. And so clinically, we always uh, precede science. It's clinic, clinical uh, experience is what drives science in our area because without without the quandary that you uh, face with a patient, you have no need to study it. So, um, I mean, there's always people who are, you know, microscopically examining their navel, you know, things that aren't practical, but for the most part, any decent science is preceded by a, a, some kind of a, a challenge in practice. So uh, if we, if we look at, um, the things that uh, we were most interested in now, um, and we think about the subluxation, for instance, just the basic, very first uh, entity that we were supposedly treating uh, or trying to correct. The only um, the only real problem with that, I think, is. Uh, there's there's just a large group of people who feel in, in academia primarily who feel that there's too many people that take a uh, like a metaphysical approach to that. And it's associated with the philosophy and um, and let's face it, I've, I've heard some, you know, philosophy um lectures that went so far off into examining your navel with a microscope uh, <laughs> that that were very really may or may not have had anything to do with reality um, and philosophy is important in life but you can't prove philosophy it's it's that's why it's that's why we you know uh, we don't have any proof that there's God or how the world started or, you know, any of that. I mean, it's, it's just, you, it's, it's, it turns into what your faith is. So whenever you involve, and there's so much of that in chiropractic that 
and and you know and I've enjoyed uh, uh, those those lectures and things but for the most part you you have to look at it from a practical standpoint and what is it that you can show in a in a, in a research kind of a way that um, makes it meaningful and it allows you to to study it and examine it and so when um, when you look at the subluxation from a very basic standpoint, which basically an interarticular disruption that in, that creates uh, problems in the spine that, that lead to neurological interferences and and ill health, um, that's very studyable. It's it's there's nothing about that that's not um, uh, that you're not able to study. The problem is, is there's so many different varying definitions of it. And the chiropractic profession never really settled on a single, um, a single definition. And so you could, you could argue that, um, that we're all over the map in that regard. Uh, but if you look at certain researchers like, uh, Jay Triano, who, um, you know, who, who talked about, um, the, the subluxation in terms of spinal buckling patterns and that those kind of patterns, uh, led to the logical approach to adjusting. And I mean, that stuff's in the literature. They just ignore it. And he's mm -hmm. one of the most respected researchers there's ever been in chiropractic. So, um, that we have uh we have published papers out there that have argued in favor of the idea of the subluxation as a basis for um for for our research and for um the you know the focus on what we're trying to work on and correct and and all that stuff is measurable and and there's you know there's criteria that you go through I'm not going to bore you with and but it's Bottom line is if we if we all just settled the idea and said, okay, we're all going to agree right now that this is what a subluxation is, and we just stuck to the basics, we just stuck to, you know, it's a structural problem and created by damage to the joint tissues, and it leaves you with uh, a remnant of a dysfunctional joint that is no longer able to handle this, the loads, and it has various ways in which you can interfere with the nervous system, either reflexly or physically, and if we didn't get into all the minutia, um, as you know, in terms of the definition, we kept it real simple. Mm -hmm. We could, we could just use that as our format and go forward. And, and no matter how much they cried about it, not being scientific, it, it would be scientific. It's just <laughs> that people are all over the map and we've spent so much time studying pain. It, there's just so much on, okay, well, low back pain or neck pain or headaches or, and, and then when, when you look at, if you want to talk about unscientific, look at almost all studies that are done and look at their methods and they will say that they receive manipulation, side, side posture manipulation or uh, whatever. They don't talk about the specific, like I'd, I would flunk out in my high school chemistry class if I talked about my materials and methods that, um, generally right That's you want right. to be able to reproduce the experiment they don't even tell you how they adjusted they don't tell you 
um, what the, you know, so we, we adjusted the thoracic spine to them. They see a few studies that say, that suggest that, well, when you push here, it'll vibrate up several levels. So probably you're not being specific or people got out of pain and the alignment didn't change. So alignment doesn't matter or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so instead of really um, breaking it down into, you know, pieces and, and really looking at things, there's so much that's just thrown out there that, um, and there's, there's a political push. There's just a faction in our profession that doesn't want uh, subluxation based people to be running the show. I mean, they, they, they want to fit in as a, as a part of the, the overall medical apparatus so that they can get paid by insurance companies and all of that. And, um, you know, there's just a, a group out there that it's, it's like, you know, the far left and the far right in politics, they don't, they're never going to talk to each other. Right. So best thing we can do is just try to stick to the truth and, and keep plugging away and hope that someday someone will see stuff that we did and, and take it up and go with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think the great point that you made earlier that, um, that is the clinic side that drives the research um, because you're in the unique position, I would say fairly unique of being involved in the science, but then also seeing patients. A lot of, a lot of people who do research are professional researchers and they don't really see patients. And it's true. I I'm often think of how often um, I'll, for example, I'll be in my wife's office and she'll see something and she'll make a comment about, Hey, I'm seeing a lot of this. I wonder why that is. So then that creates the question that I then go to the research to see, well, is there an answer to that question? And usually there is, but I wouldn't have thought to ask the question if we didn't observe the behavior in the office. And it really does drive it that direction. It should drive it that direction. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because we have that experience when we try to publish papers is, and especially the one that we're doing right now, because it's a commentary, it's not, you know, basic research. And when, when we talk about what we see in practice, a lot of the times the peer reviewers will, um, they'll act like they were, were speaking a different language. Mm-hmm. And I feel pretty strongly that a lot of the academics out there just don't have the same experiences that someone who's a full-time clinician or, um, you know, that or like, because they never take x-rays, um, when we talk about the importance of, of certain things that we see on x-rays, it, it, it doesn't resonate with them at all. And, or if we, if we say we get a lot of information that changes how we approach a patient, I'm sure you've had this experience, David, where you're checking a patient and then you take an x-ray and you go, wow, I didn't expect to see that. Right. Yeah. And how many times does that happen? And it's not it's not just the unusual ones, but you you can find where problems are coming from 80% of the time without an x-ray. But when you look at the x-ray, it's not just a rare thing that it changes your approach. And so uh I think we we are our experiences are not being reflected in most most of academia because most people in academia aren't practicing and and they're they're basically just thinking with their research brains but the three-legged stool that that best practices sits on is 
your experience as a, and knowledge as a practitioner and the evidence that has been published and the patient's preference. I can tell you that the, whenever I'm I, like, sometimes I'll, I'll be treating patients and, and uh, I'll have just spent the morning trying to answer a reviewer's question about the paper that we submitted. And I'm feeling this frustration and I'm shaking my head and then something pops up in this patient and I go, see, now here's a perfect example of where, what, what, what I'm trying to explain to these people. And it'll, sometimes I'll just, it'll bubble out and I'll start talking to the patient about it. And they'll, they'll just, I'm telling you, every single one of my patients will just about everyone will say, well, of course you need an x-ray. How stupid is that? Why, why would you adjust somebody without an x-ray? And, you know, of course I, this is kind of, you know, confirmation bias as well. I mean, people seek me out oftentimes because they know I'm going to take an x-ray. Right. So I'm not getting those people who are just free, but if people knew, see, if we weren't operating on Cold War radiation exposure fear, which is what's driven this, you know, I mean, the atomic bombs were were scary and, and devastating and and it was, you know, there was, it was terrible, right? So there was a lot of that. And then, I, you know, I'm old enough to at 63 to know that when we were young and we'd have these drills in school, well, it's okay. Air raid drill, get under your desk, you know, because somebody's going to drop an A-bomb on you. Like that wouldn't make any difference. But we were fear, fearful of that because it was fairly recent that that had happened. So most of all of the things that are known about radiation came out of studying the Japanese uh, victims and of, of the atomic bombs. And so these are all very, very high levels of exposure. So we can't, we can't really adequately, if you want to talk about something that's not scientific, um, applying the linear no threshold uh, assumption to these very low level exposures is about as unscientific as it gets. It's way more unscientific than anything that we do. Uh, and it also gets in the way of clinical decision making that might help that individual. I, I would be willing to say that almost any chiropractor would have a better understanding of the spine if they saw an x-ray of that person before they adjusted them, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. it just seems on face value, it just seems like that's a pretty straightforward question. You know, Even if it's so. just some things like the, the disc plane lines, the, the degree of curve, like even if it's nothing pathological or odd, just knowing for this unique patient, what kind of curves do they have? Are they straight or they flat? Like simple things like that would make a huge difference. Well, when we, when we look at the percentage of anomalies or variations in anatomy that, that occur mm -hmm. uh, in patients in the absence of red flags, it's, it's the vast majority of them, you know, and there's so many, especially if you have, uh, you know, if you have problems in say the lumbosacral area, I mean, how often do you see, either spondylolisthesis or a degenerative disc or um, retrolisthesis or, or um, a significant, you know, uh, tilt in one direction or another, mm -hmm. um, a transitional segment. Uh, you only have four, not five lumbars, or you have six and not five. I mean, any number of things that, that, 
you know, you have spatulated TP on one side, you don't have it on the other, and you can't figure out why you're not a, you're getting that adjustment. Um, but when you're only really concerned about yeah. a short-term symptom, maybe you best thing you could do is just from some watchful waiting. I mean, if if this is really such a small problem that you don't need an x-ray for it, and we know that most pain episodes will just go away on their own, then why do we bother even treating them in the first four to six weeks? Why don't we just say, okay, you're hurting. Call me in four to six weeks. If you're still hurting, then <laughs> then then we'll do something about it. Exactly. But see, that's, that, that's more scientific than... Um, that's more scientific than adjusting them without an x-ray, in my view. It'd be more scientific to just leave them alone for four to six weeks if you only have those two choices. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, well, and for me, I went to, I went to a so-called evidence-based school where it goes the other way around and the science is the clinical side. So unless you have a good reason to do something, you can't do it. So then you want to get an x-ray and they go, well, what reason do you have to take an x-ray? Well, I don't have one. Then you shouldn't take one. But then you take the x-ray and go, there's a transitional segment. That's my reason to take the x-ray, but I wouldn't have known it was there unless I took the x-ray. <laughs> you end up in these like weird conundrums. But And uh, where did you go to school? LACC. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's really... Um... I mean, I don't think that I'm saying anything that's untrue by saying it's really not a chiropractic school. It's more of just a kind of a general health school and they allow you to do some specialization in chiropractic. I mean, it seems like to me. Yeah, that that was probably a pretty good analysis because even for me, when I did my clinic rotation, I was on campus, which meant that to shoot all of our x-rays, we had to use the department on campus, whereas the satellite clinics had their own x-ray areas. So we had to use the one on campus. Well, that's where all the DAC bars were. And the DAC bars, it seemed like, would go to the longest level possible to not take an x-ray. So I, I've often told And you know why that is the case? Because they are using the linear no threshold theory of risk. Because otherwise, if there was no risk, they wouldn't have that worry. So, yeah. and so they're, they're basically practicing in an unscientific manner. Because there's no evidence to support the linear no threshold theory at, or assumption at very low levels. So we, in fact, we know that radiation doesn't behave that way at those levels. It's not like it was, you know, absence of proof. We have proof of its absence. <laughs> so it's like, well, at what point are they going to give it away? The problem is, is the, um, the people in charge. I, I once searched when I was first looking into this whole thing, this this thing about the current article that we're trying to get published about, you know, clinical decisions and the use of X-ray and chiropractic, um, it started with a long time ago where we, you know, we've been, this conundrum has been around since. I remember the first time I, I wrote anything on it was back when the uh, AHCPR uh, back in the 90s it was 90 seven or something like that and i and i wrote uh, an article for the dynamic chiropractic newspaper and, and basically just said um the cpr guidelines we were you know we were kind of happy in chiropractic that they came out because the government was basically saying hey chiropractic can help low back pain and that's like one of the first <laughs> times the u.s government has come out and said that we had some in new zealand we had some others but 
but we had some states like Utah and places like that that had done some suggesting that it was good. But to have the U.S. government, you know, panel come out and say, hey, chiropractic can help some people with low back pain. It was like, wow, how cool. But at the same time, they said, but there's no support for taking any x-rays if you have low back pain. So, and and at that time, I, I basically said the same thing I'm trying to say now. We need to have separate guidelines for uh, a pain-based operation like medicine where we're the field of medicine where we're not touching them and we're just giving the medication in that case you don't need an x-ray because you're not throwing a force into their spine right but if we're throwing a force into the spine we should look at this spine before we throw a force in there and it seems if you talk to most people they would agree you know if if they knew there was not any significant risk to taking the x-ray and all it was was going to cost them 50 or 80 bucks for an x-ray or however much. You know what I mean? It's like you could, if that's the case, let's just give x-rays almost at no charge. You know, it's like, I'd rather do that than not have an x-ray. That's how I always felt too. Yeah. So anyway, that, that's been since then. Okay. So then along the way we started, to, we have to somehow address this. And so. Several years ago, I decided, okay, let's just put out a white paper on the, the way we use x-rays. Let's, let's compile a whole bunch of cases, have examples and photos and images of, and how that changed what we did on the patient. And we'll give this to the class. We'll give it to the schools for free. And we'll just, and if they want to show their students, like, well, how x-rays make a difference in the way we approach things, they'll have some examples to go by. And as it turned out, that was um, very difficult to put together unless basically I did it all myself because, you know, and then I have to, I'm trying to get a whole bunch of different doctors. So it's not just me, you know, because it's basically, it's not, it's not Mark Lopes chiropractic that I'm trying to, you know, uh, show people how things work. It's, it's basically the, you know, all of us together. Right. Mm -hmm. And in our collective uh, mindset and how we use these x-rays and everybody's got experiences that are valid but the problem is is to get x-rays that you can take good photos of or now most people are going digital so it'll be easier to do but when you transfer these images to you know a uh, paper or, or internet or whatever a lot of times you couldn't even see the bones and then you ask people to write things up and it's not something they're used to doing and it's if you're not used to doing it it can take a while to get it right so eventually i end up writing it myself and re, you know so it's like I said, okay hold on let's we're not ready for that so then that kind of table and then so finally we got to this point now enough things have been published now that really support the idea that the linear no threshold uh assumption is i mean there's an all out war in you know, radiation physics journals and all this about that. I mean, there's so many people criticizing those who keep using models when they say, well, that, you know, you take a dental x-ray 10 times over the course of somebody's life and they have an X 40% more chance of getting thyroid cancer. Well, they're basing that on the linear north threshold modeling and then mathematically computing from there. It's like, well, we know that if you get a little bit, so at the very high level, you get this risk. Then at a very little bit, you're going to have this risk. 
because it's directly proportional linearly. Now we say you gave this exposure and then we say this is what we found. And and so often the, the models, I mean, almost, I have never really seen one that wasn't based on the linear threshold modeling. So all of their predictions about what's going to happen in the future is likely erroneous. So you can't really trust the, you know, what's your cancer risk of taking a dental x-ray or a chiropractic x-ray. And, and there was a time when I looked into it as deeply as I could, and I tried to find the source of these things. And so I actually went on the radiologic health branch that governs it nationally and, and statewide as well. And, you know, different ones. And I, and I found the national one and I was, I was, um, I found meetings that, and where I could actually listen to their recorded discussions and they would be having these arguments in, in, inside their own meetings and they would basically default to a position of safety and they would say well we just can't be in a position in case at some point we do find out there's some risk we can't be in a position to um to have said this is okay because now we're on the hook mm -hmm. and so the the government doesn't want to be on the hook or these individuals don't want to be on the hook for making the wrong choice so until we have solid proof, and, and that may never happen, because you, you just can't study it because the effect is so minimal. I mean, you'd need a million people years to figure out of what yeah. risk there might be, and, and it's just not going to happen. <laughs> What's that? And a lot of X-rays. Yeah, it's not doable. <laughs> so, and then, and then the the onus is always on us. It's like, well, prove to us there's benefit. Okay, yeah. so we've talked about how do we set up a research project to do that so let's say you didn't use x-rays as a practitioner and i did okay mm -hmm. normally you didn't use them i did and so we said let's funnel these patients through dr fowler who doesn't use x-rays which i know you do but doesn't use x-rays and let's funnel the, the you know another matched group through and we'll blindedly assess then we'll blindedly assign these people and then we'll blindedly take you know some kind of you know, outcome measures, whatever the outcome measures are to see you know, who, who's, which patients actually did better. So it made a difference in outcomes of any kind. Now you can go back and go, well, wait a minute. Dr. Fowler did better than Dr. Lopes. Oh, well, maybe Dr. Fowler is just a better chiropractor than Dr. Lopes, you know, or vice versa. And right. then you could say, okay, well, then we'll switch them. You know, then we'll, then we'll do, then we'll, you know, we'll take these patients and put them over there after. So you switch over partway through and it's the same problem. And then, okay, let's say you take the same doctor who doesn't use x-rays and you funnel, and then you show him x-rays on half of his group, but you don't show him x-rays on the other half. Well, if he doesn't know how to look at the x-rays, if he doesn't really know what he's looking for, if he doesn't have any experience in analyzing x-rays and really putting that into use, it may not make much difference to him because he's used to adjusting people off of palpation all that anyway. So that's a that's a weakness. You can't really prove anything that way. Let's say let's do it the other way. Let's take Dr. Lopes and say, okay, he's usually going to see an x-ray before he adjusts. So we're going to have him half of the group with x-rays, half without. Well, then they'll say he wasn't used to treating people without x-rays. He relies on the x-ray so much. He didn't know how to treat them without them. And so you you just really, it's it's nearly impossible to to design a study without a huge number of participants and and you know a number of doctors and it's just it would be so expensive to try to figure out no one ever does it and part of the reason they don't do it is because 
they don't think alignment matters anyway. Really. I mean, you know, they don't think alignment matters because when you look at it from a frequentist approach, which is how most data is analyzed, it's like, you know, on average, people who have problems on their x-ray, you really can't tell. It's not associated with a commensurate number of symptoms. In other words, a person could have a bad x-ray, not very many symptoms. A person could have a good x-ray and a lot of symptoms. So they don't correlate with symptoms on average. Right. So if you took a thousand people and you looked at them, you wouldn't really be able to tell who had pain and who didn't have pain at any given time. That's the frequentist's approach, right? Whereas if you took a Bayesian approach, which is more of a, you add some prior knowledge in there and you, and it, it's, if you look at Bayesian reasoning is basically a, a way of adjusting your interpretation of data by saying, well, I have some prior knowledge of this person. That person was in a car wreck 15 years ago and had an injury before. And yeah, I didn't have pain right now, but I'll bet you if I took an x-ray on that person compared to someone who didn't have a car accident, that there'll be something interesting on his x-ray where the other person maybe won't be as much of a chance because they've never had a history of an injury, right? So we're looking at things on a day-to-day basis more in a Bayesian style, whereas people are looking at research from a frequentist approach. And the two don't match. The frequentist approach really doesn't tell you about practice. So when we try to apply this research to practice, we have this a square peg in a round hole kind of a scenario. And so that's another reason why evidence-based medicine is, is or best practice is, is really elusive. Um, so we have to look at data differently in order to really apply it practically in a lot of ways. And there's weaknesses to both sides and strengths to both sides, but, um, you know, those are kind of the conundrums that we run into when you're talking about applying or, you know, adapting research findings and putting them in practice. It's not all that simple. Right. Right. From a, from the clinician side, do you think if people are going to do x-rays in their office, are there any like major, I don't even want to say red flags, but any major things that they should do in order to make sure that they're taking x-rays in the most scientific way that they can? Um. Well, um, if, if there have been any corticosteroid use in the past, like if they take inhalers on a regular basis, um, that's, that's kind of a red flag right there. That's one of the criteria. Okay. They have like a Canadian cervical spine rule, uh, deal that was put together, I think in the, uh, in the emergency rooms there to tell which people you should take an x-ray from. There are certain criteria, um, uh, and, and I don't remember them all just right at the moment because I don't really rely on those strictly, but there's four or five criteria, then you're going to find something bad on an x-ray, right? Well, they're still talking about finding a red flag. <laughs> it's not about preparing you to adjust somebody, right? Right. So, yeah. um, yeah. you know, you, you basically, if they're over 65, take an x-ray. That finally, actually, if they're over 55, take an x-ray. I would say if their pain has been there more than four to six weeks, take an x-ray. I think you're within, you know, because they say within the first four to six weeks of care. But I think you look at it from a standpoint, if they've had pain for four to six weeks, I mean, we know that if they um, have like a whiplash injury, 
and they don't get any treatment and they still have symptoms three weeks out, the chances are about 80% they're going to have symptoms 10 years from now, from that injury. And so based on the long-term studies that have been done. So I would say if someone has pain for four to six weeks, when they get to your office, take an x-ray. I think you're within the boundary of, you know, the guidelines on a loose level. Of course, if they have any history of taking corticosteroids regularly, that's another, you know, another reason you could see bone weakness. Um, you know, and then, of course, um, just the clinical case itself as far as do you feel comfortable adjusting them without an x-ray? You know, I mean, if this person is writhing in pain and you can't even put any pressure on them, take an x-ray, you know what I mean? Um, basically, other than that, it's all red flag kind of stuff. Fracture, infection. If they got a fever, take an x-ray. You know, or if they recently had a fever, take an x-ray. Um, if they've had a history of cancer in the past and they've got, and they've got pain in an area where it could have been metastasized, take an x-ray. Um, I mean, you got a lot of things that you could go by. Um, and of course, if they're not progressing after four to six weeks, take an x-ray if you didn't take one already. Um, uh, if the course changes dramatically, you know, if, if, if you know it's going to alter your approach to this patient significantly, take an x-ray. Um, you know, for me, that's, that's, if, if I'm going to adjust somebody and they're an adult, okay, they're not a pediatrics case and they're not pregnant. If I'm going to adjust somebody, that means that they've have they have a significant problem in my mind. And so I'm going to take an x-ray on most everybody that I'm going to adjust that isn't pregnant or, you know, some other contraindication or the very young. Um, I'm going to take an x-ray on before I take care of them. Uh, just that's, and that, and that's the thing, you know, we need to have some understanding that the guidelines for us is different than the guidelines for a medical doctor who's not going to adjust somebody. And in that case, you have to go through, because a lot of the force levels that have been tested are higher than the force levels that create injury. And you're, and you're talking about healthy tissues when they do the experiments on healthy tissues, how much force does it take to create an injury? Some, some forces that have been studied overlap those levels of force that create an injury. So you're, you're, you're close, especially in the lumbar spine on a good P to aim push move or something like that. I mean, some of those are up around 13, 1400 newtons and it may take less than that to actually create an injury if you do it repetitively on the spine. So, um, then you take a buckled spine that's previously been injured and that is definitely lower than a normal spine would be significantly lower. So in my view, if you're going to use a forceful adjust, if you're just going to mobilize somebody and pump the disc or you, you know, and you don't want to take an x-ray safe, but you know, the, the, uh, the, 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 the percentage of, uh, of adverse effects of an adjustment is like close to 50% when you look at minor amounts of minor to moderate pain after an adjustment more than what they had. It's like 30 something to 50% of cases have a slight increase in pain. How do we know we're not making it worse if we're not looking at things? Right. You know, and it's natural. You've seen it. 
you adjust somebody and then, wow, it was really sore the next day, all day. And then I got up the next day and my pain was gone. I've had oh, that yeah. pain for six weeks. You know, it yeah. wasn't just coincidence. Right. Yeah. So, but if you don't have that x-ray, how about on that next visit? Do you think, oh, geez, what did I do that was wrong? Should I change that? And right. you don't have that confidence. How many times, David, have you seen an MRI on a bad low back case or neck case or something? And you've been working off an x-ray and palpation and history and all the other findings. And then you're having some trouble. So you run an MRI and you go, oh, crap, they have two disc protrusions or they have five. You know, I've seen them where they have every disc in the lumbar spine protruded and and you're going, well, there's any one of these could, you know, I mean, so I, it makes it so much different when you can see images of what's going on inside because you know what happened to the tissue. And now it's like, okay, I've got that information now. How do I use that to try to fix this person? Or like you've been doing five and then you see the MRI and you're like, actually the four looks worse. Yeah. Look at the x-ray and you're like, but it doesn't look worse on the x-ray. And then you scope it and it looks, and it's so subtle, but it's four and not five. And you're like, How did I miss that? You well, do the and the other thing is, is that sometimes the four is really not misaligned much, but it's got a humongous protrusion. Right. Yep. Because five was hanging back. Okay. Five was retro and it's stuck. Right. So they bend mm-hmm. forward. What bids? Four. Right. And, but it hasn't really settled and misaligned so much. It's like an acute disc problem. Wait till that thing settles. The pressure's gone. And then the strength of that disc is reduced. And then pretty soon as they settle on it, pretty soon it'll slip anterior or it'll also slip posterior or it'll slip sideways or tilt or whatever. And then you'll see the misalignment. Yeah. <laughs> but so often, and the you know, thing of it is that never happens on the people that you're successfully treating because those are the ones where you, su- <laughs> you succeeded to fix it. It probably wasn't five, right? So the only yeah. ones you really see on the MRI are the ones that you didn't fix. So of course that's going to be the next one up, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that's so, when you get that lesson in specificity because you think I was in the ballpark, but the ballpark wasn't close enough. And, and like you said earlier, you might even be doing more harm because you're off that little bit. And, and all those people who think that specificity doesn't matter, which is pretty much everybody that's doing research on manipulation. Okay. Right. They don't yep. pay any attention to specificity. So for all those people, all you need is one of those cases to go, crap, specificity was really important. Yeah. In this I, case, I, I, told <laughs> you know? new, yeah, I told new students that um, specificity may not matter on every patient. It may, even if it only matter on 10%, the problem is you don't know which 10%. Yeah. So well, and, got, and not mattering might mean you couldn't tell that it mattered. Right. You might get away with it. And it, you yeah. should really <laughs> And you do. I mean, it's safe, right? People pop their own backs all the time and it's relatively safe. So, but again, um, when you're working with the kind of forces that we're doing and you, you know, an adjustment takes place specifically at the time when this, um, when this person is relaxed, when all of their defenses are gone and it, and it takes place when, when you have that joint in a vulnerable position where you've isolated the movement to this one specific spot and then you thrust. And so, I mean, you're at the most vulnerable place for an injury for that joint if you don't know what it looks like inside. Now, if you just take somebody and spin them one way and spin them the other way, then that's not the case. Whatever is the loose ones are going to loosen up, and then they're already popping anyway on their own when you just bend left and right. So, But, you know, you stimulate the nervous system a little bit, and you reduce some of the discomfort and instantaneously. That's that's why people get addicted to self-popping because – 
they're they're firing those mechanoreceptors and it quiets quiets the muscles down instantaneously for 10 20 minutes and they feel better and you tell them yeah 10 20 minutes you're going to feel like you want to do it again he goes yeah I mean, that's that's because you're not really fixing anything mm-hmm. but people who don't pop themselves get that done by somebody who just you know haphazardly rotates them or something and they go wow he fixed me yeah so until we study it we're not going to really know and and unless we consider it a priority and unless unless researchers actually take up the gauntlet and take up the challenge and say hey let's see if alignment matters we don't even study it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah the hypomobility theory took over you know it's like we started out with alignment and fixation those two things were like the main things that chiropractors looked for well, the fixation thing took over. And that, that really is where all the researchers went. Is there stiffness? You can take bending views. Is it hypermobile? You know, the mobility thing is where everybody kind of, it was easier to study, number one, and it's more of an immediate change. So. Right. Uh, Measure it. Yeah. But it, the misalignment thing just went by the wayside. It was hard to study. It means you had to x-ray people. Um, there's, everybody's going to die from x-ray in their mind. Right. So they just stopped doing it. And and like you try to get a, an approval from, uh, institutional review board and well, the risk of the x-ray is a factor here, you know, so maybe they won't approve as many of those as they do ones you don't have to take x-rays. Yeah. And if if you can't see a fixation on an x-ray, then why are we taking an x-ray? Right. So yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This that was awesome. I love uh, I love the topic of X rays, but I learned a lot. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you so much. Well, cool. Hopefully, your listeners will get something more out of this than a, a good snooze. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I hope they can really learn something that they can even apply. So, um, thank you again for joining me. I really appreciate okay, it. Okay, David. Thanks for the invite. My pleasure. You bet. you bet. Take care. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you. You too. Bye bye. I'd like to thank Dr. Lopes once again for joining me. I love the topic of x-rays, so I really enjoyed that conversation and hearing what he has to say on the topic. If you've ever considered joining the GCSS or contributing to the research fund, now is a great time to do it. All of the money is used to perform chiropractic research like Dr. Lopes was talking about. If you'd like to know more, you can check out the website at www.gonstead.com or you can call the home office and Michelle will be happy to help you. Until we meet again, I hope you have the best week possible. I'll see you again next time.